This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Well, what's going on? Well, the polls yesterday were certainly not good news for Doug Ford. His double-digit lead that he had just a few weeks ago uh, has all but evaporated now, and he is, for all intents and purposes, in a dead heat with Andrea Horvath and the NDP, which is not bad enough, I guess, for the PCs. But the fact is, is they're heading up, and, uh, well, actually the, the PCs went down a little bit. So what are the implications? I mean, there's still two weeks to go. Let's ask Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Richard, uh, good to have you on the program. How are you doing today? Just fine, Bill. If you just give me a sec, though, I have to wipe the egg off my face. <laughs> uh, having said that, uh, Andrew wouldn't have a hope in hell. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's elections for you. You never know what's going to happen. But we talked about this early on the campaign, just as the writ was being dropped, and wondered about a, a repetition of what happened in 1990, where people were just so fed up with the Liberals and with the PCs that they basically said, yeah, let's just give these other guys a shot at it. Uh, I, I never thought it would happen, uh, you know, because we've talked about the ghost of Bob Ray and the Ray days and everything else, but maybe people have forgotten. Maybe they're forgiven. I don't know. You know what, what it is, is uh, maybe it's our age, Bill. I'm speaking of myself here particularly. But the fact is that, you know, we, we, we talk about Bob Ray and the, and the ghost of 1990-95, but most of the voters today, many of the voters, weren't even alive, or if they were, they were just children. So those those memories mean nothing to them. And so they'll be willing to take a flyer on, you know, somebody they look at and say, yeah, she seems like a, a nice person. And and it's it's just anything, anybody but Ford that's really starting to really eat into their support. I mean, the Ford Nation, if you can call it that, will, will always have its supporters. But there are people out there, including, as I said in the last time we spoke, many uh, conservatives who want nothing to do with them. So how does this translate then on uh, uh, with the way things are happening? And, and I'm trying to, you know, I guess, conflate a number of the polls that have come out in the last uh, two or three days here, Richard, that, and all of them seem to tell the same story. Uh, you know, difference, uh, a difference rather of just a couple of percentage points, but, you know, there's always that margin of error. So it's, it's effectively a dead heat. But they, you juxtapose that with another poll that was done that says, well, the people that are going to support Ford are solid. They know where they're going. They're not going to switch at all. Mind you, there's been a 2% drop in his support over the last 10 days or so. But they say it's a very fluid NDP support right now. Now, what does that tell you? Does that mean that those are new people or people that are not so sure they want to stick with Andrea Horvath and the NDP? Well, I think you're going to see a bit of, a, a bit of an increase. It was, what was it last time? You'd know better than I probably because I was in the midst of it myself. But uh, it was something like 52% of uh, voters voted last time. Yeah. I think in Ontario it's breaking, but I think you will see it increase somewhat with new voters and new voters who are, you know, feel that they have to vote if not, for no other reason to stop Duck Ford. They, I was talking to some conservative friends of mine, and they were saying that their uh, support in, in southwestern Ontario, which I thought was strong, is starting to erode. You saw, uh, you saw Mr. Ford in Chatham, and I think he's been there twice in the last little while, speaking, and that tells you something. If he's been to Chatham twice, he knows that things are starting to slide and he's trying to shore up support. So I just thought southwestern Ontario would be, you know, blue, but, you know, it may be not. Remember, in 1990, Chatham, Kent went to NDP. So it's it's really, uh, at this point, it's a guessing game, but it's certainly not looking good 
for the for the uh, Ford crew, and we, we know it's not looking good for uh, Kathleen. I mean, C- Kathleen's trying to save the furniture at this point, but again, that's what happens after 15 years. People want want to see out. Yeah, and the numbers are pretty, I guess, frustrating and, and depressing. I guess for liberal supporters at this stage, uh, and it is a two-person race, and 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 I guess, and you talked about this earlier on in the race as well, Richard is that anti-Ford sentiment, uh, whether you're a conservative supporter, liberal, NDP, whatever the case might be, for anything to happen, had to coalesce around one candidate. Do you sense that's what this, this number here, this this momentum, if we can use that phrase in politics, uh, that, that Andrea Horvath seems to be enjoying, is is it a result of that coalescing behind her and say, well, well she's the best bet, I guess? Well, yes, she's the fail-safe. I mean, she is the person. They don't want Kathleen. They don't like Doug Ford. So she's going to reap the benefits of that. The Green Party is, you know, God bless them, you know, they might get one seat, you know, but they always talk about getting that one seat. We'll see if it happens. I mean, they aren't gonna, people aren't going to say, look it, I'm tired, I don't want the Ford plan, I don't want, I don't want Kathleen, I'm willing, you know, willing to accept somebody else, and that somebody else is not the Green Party. Sure, they'll get, they might get some more votes, but it's not going to be enough to make a difference. Mike Schreiner's running in, uh, I guess that's an open seat. Wasn't that Liz Sandals' old seat? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, I know he's a pretty popular guy up there. It, if, if this goes through the way it has, and, 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 you know, there's a minority government or whatever, uh, are the PCs going to rue the day that they excluded the Greens from this? I mean, because if there's going to be a separation, if there's a lot of anti-Ford sentiment right here, uh, it would have been a lot better if they could have had, you know, okay, some are going to Greens, some are Liberals, some to NDP. Uh, the fact that there's really only two choices right now is, mean, oh, okay, it's either Kathleen Wynne and Andrea, and we know how they feel about Kathleen Wynne. Yeah, well, I think what's notable here is that you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation if Christine Elliott or Mulroney had gotten picked. No, she'd, she'd be no, she'd be decorating the premier's office right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. But so they, they, you know, they picked Doug Ford for for whatever reasons, and it's just. I don't, it's hard to explain that the Tories have this ability to shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, somebody take the shotgun away from it because they're running out of feet here. Uh, Every, in the past few elections, and I mean, and I'm not not saying that they can't win still. Believe me, two weeks is a long time election. One week is a lifetime election. And and we may see something happen yet, but every day there's something new coming out on the fort. This or that, he did something untoward here, or his candidate did something wrong there, and and it's just and that's starting to add up. And you know, it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall. Some some is going to stick, and this is starting to stick. And, and that's a number, and I talked about that on my commentary. That a number that seems to be getting larger. Uh, you know, there were the the the, the situation in Brampton, of course, with the uh, the hacking of the four hundred seven data. And, and that's still ongoing. We don't know what's going on. He kicked the candidate to the curb. That's one thing. But now they're investigating, well, who knew about this? Who used that data? And, and that can get ugly. Uh, now the NDP, of course, have uh, petitioned Elections Ontario to check out 12 different PC nomination meetings. Uh, and, of course, that's, you know, we don't know if there's anything going to come of that, but it's it's not the kind of news you want to hear two weeks before a vote. Well, we're not talking about just, you know, fiddling with this, you know, ballot box or that one. It, with, that, with that stuff with the 407, we're talking about something illegal. They were stealing people's identity. I mean, this is not just something frivolous. This is going to be a police investigation. If it, you know, I'm sure it is already now. But, there, you know, there could be charges come out of this. This is not, this is not just 
something you can just brush away. Uh, it's with, with the whole thing with Ford, it's people just, well, particularly the fact that, you know, let's go back to, you know, he has no plan. He's offered no plan to Ontarians. And he says, well, I'm going to do it before the election. Well, hold on a second. That's a little late, isn't it? In my books, it would be. If, you know, I, these platforms are made of nothing, quite frankly, but at least it gives you an idea where the party is headed. And you, the platform tells you that they're going to spend this kind of money or they're interested in social programs or interested in helping business, whatever they might do. But with Ford, it's a pig and a poke. We have no idea what he's going to do. He just talks about things, but talks just that. You know, it's, it's nothing. I, it's but it, it worked before, and I know people cringe. Conservative supporters cringe whenever we draw analogies between Trump and, and Ford. And I'm not talking about the personalities. I'm not suggesting Doug Ford is like Donald Trump. What I'm saying is his campaign is very much like the campaign that Trump ran. And that's basically promise them a, t- a ton of stuff, don't tell them how. And, and one of the classic examples, of course, with Trump was, I've got a plan that's going to defeat ISIS within 30 days. I'm not telling you what it is. After I become president, I will. Well, it's been more than 30 of A's, by the way. And, and you know, the, but it, it, they, he gets a pass. But maybe, maybe we've watched that and learned and thought, you know what? We're not giving anybody a blank check. I don't care who you are. Well, and I think you're right. I think you're bang on, quite frankly. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not saying you know he's you know he is like you. I'm not saying that uh, Ford is Trump. Their personalities are different, but the politics are very similar. Yeah, and that's what counts. People, you know, you just. I think uh, you know Ontario voters are a lot smarter than that, and they're saying, well, "Hold on a second, you're saying this." but I see nothing to support it. I see no plan. I see no direction, uh, no platform. So what, what are people to think? And, you know, and bringing it out, let's say it brings it out at the end of this week. Well, I'm sorry, but that's, that's too late. That's you know, closing the barn door. Paul Martin did that in 2005, didn't he? I, I think they released their platform about uh, two weeks before the vote. Uh, yeah, and it was too little, too there, late. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. yeah. So, and and by the way, the, the analogies there are pretty, so, I, I think, very apt here. Uh, that was, uh, you know, the Liberals have been in power for a number of years. I think it was 11 or 12 years at that stage. And and th- as you say, there's voter fatigue after a while. They're just saying, you know what, this is this is not working out. It's about time for a change. And that's still out there. And, and, and to your point about uh, the number of people that are actually going to vote on June 7th, uh, it's been your experience, I would think, Richard, that when people want change, uh, that's when they get motivated to come out and vote. Usually, do have higher voter turnouts when people are are ticked off and they say we got to get those people out of there. Voters don't vote governments in; they vote them out. Yeah. So and I think I think Kathleen wins. Her Kathleen wins fate has been sealed. I, I think we can pretty much justify that. You know, that's not going to happen. I mean, and we don't know what's going to happen. That's another discussion about what's going to happen with her career after June seventh. Well, but, you know, you, you know, you survive. I mean, Bob Ray was riding the subways the next day after he went went down. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's not life and death here; it's politics. And you know, you just you survive. You you get off the mat and dust yourself off and head in whatever whatever direction. I think she'll she'll do just quite you know fine, quite frankly. But right now, with these ads where she's saying we can do better, that's. That's directed right at her base. She is trying, like I said earlier, trying to save the furniture here. 
when you see momentum like this, uh, what what does this do to the campaign? What does this do in the last two weeks of this campaign? I mean, you know, momentum's a big thing in politics, obviously. And is there a feeling in the Ford campaign right now that they've got to do something to, to get the ball back? Or do they just simply say, not, not, I know publicly what they're saying, Richard, is uh, nothing to worry about here. It's like that scene in in Naked Gun, you know, when there's a big explosion at the fireworks factory and Leslie Nielsen's there. Nothing to see here, nothing to see. There is something going on here, but they don't want to admit that. But you got to well, know there's some hand-wringing going on behind closed doors. What you have is a, a couple a couple things here. You have the NDP, you know, the leader and, and, and her aides are trying to dampen down the enthusiasm. Don't start measuring the curtains yet. We're a long way away. That's one of the toughest things there is for her campaign right now is to get you know enthusiasm good but you don't want people counting their chickens because it ain't there yet uh, you know and with him it's trying to build up the troops trying to pump them up and saying look at this is not over yet we've got a long way to go and we, we, we could still win this you know if you get out there and knock on doors blah 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 you know it's that kind of thing so they're both they're both you know, speaking to the troops in different ways. What's this going to do to the debate on Sunday night, uh, which I assume is is going to get more ratings than the previous two did? It's 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 still not in prime time on Sunday evening, but it is Sunday evening as opposed to the middle of the afternoon on a weekday. And and you got to think that with uh, only a week or so to go before the vote after after that date, the people who have just started to kind of pay attention to what's going on are going to say, "Yeah, I want to see what they've got to say." Well, this is it. A lot of most voters don't pay attention to it. A couple, you know, maybe at the most a week before the election, mm-hmm. and and so that it will it will have an impact that debate, and we'll we'll see. Yeah, I mean, Ford looks so wooden and and, and scripted, and his inabilities to speak on issues is really hurting him. Uh, and, and, you know, Kathleen is, you know, she's good. She knows, she's, you know, she's been here before. She's been at the game. She knows how to deal with it. She'll, she'll conduct herself. Right? It's really a lot's going to rest on Andrea's shoulders here. She can't come across as being too cocky. She can come across as, you know, as, as an experienced MPP and a person who, who knows, you know, knows how the place works, knows how uh, provincial politics works. But if but she really has to be very very careful that she doesn't come across as looking like she's one that one that's already. I got a minute left here. Uh, yeah. Just one other person has raised their head in this discussion. If in fact there are some cracks in the support for Ford, and, and the numbers seem to indicate that's happening, uh, will that uh, op-ed piece that Patrick Brown had in the papers today have any impact on that? People that might have been so court because he still has his supporters within the party. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he's, he's, he's saying his bit. I mean, we, we don't know how much he was implicated in all this, uh, you know, what I'll call shenanigans, for lack of a better word. But the point is, he's saying that, and where where really appeals to the red Tories, he's saying, we wanted to replicate the Bill Davis years. Yeah. Where you kind of just minded the store, looked after people, and didn't do anything crazy. Yeah, and uh, and I'm sure there are a few people that get a little misty-eyed just thinking about oh, those halcyon days of that party. Oh, absolutely. You don't have to be oldsters to to you know remember you know and and know 
what Bill Dave Davis contributed to Ontario. Richard Brennan, a retired journalist. Of course, he's covered this stuff for years, and uh, this one's, well, really developing a character of its own. We'll talk again soon. Okay, Bill. Thanks Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Interesting story. As I'm going through a number of newspapers, uh, as we do every morning in the program, uh, there's a quote here from Donald Trump that says, uh, from yesterday, he had a kind of an impromptu news conference on the lawn of the White House as he was on his way off to a, some rally. And uh, said, uh, vis-a-vis the NAFTA negotiations, Canada's very spoiled and being very difficult to deal with. And, and I had to do a double take and, and actually look at the date. I thought, this is about six months old, this story. Well, no, it's not. It's uh, variations on the same theme that Trump's been harping on for about the last six months, I guess. And uh, he reiterated that. But anyway, a lot of folks up here get a little upset about that because they're concerned about what may happen with NAFTA negotiations. And when Trump starts prattling on like this, is it a signal that things are not going well or that they may actually not have a deal at all? Joining us to talk about this, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, good morning, Bill. Are, are you upset about this? Is, is this just Trump being Trump? Um, I'm going to give a slightly different take. Um, believe it or not, and, and I'm not being sort of a Pollyanna optimist here, um, I actually, in a, in a bizarre way, I think that this, is a uh, a good sign uh, um, uh, even though we don't like the things he's saying about us and we may you know we some may find it offensive and the reason i'm saying that is that what i think he's trying to do in classic donald trump manner you know using bluster and uh, insults and bullying and braggadocio and so forth i think he's trying to push the deal across the finish line i think i interpreted these uh, comments underneath the surface to suggest that they're very close, and so what he's trying to do in his unique way was trying to push us across with the threat of the 25% import tariff on automobiles and and the telling us that we're difficult and so forth. I mean, that that's classic Trump. He's done this over and over and over again. It's in the book, his book, The Art of the Deal. You go in, you soften them up, you insult them, you uh, <laughs> you bully them, and then you uh, the idea is, as I said, to soften them up so they'll make some compromises, and then you can finally agree and close the deal. I think that's what he's doing. I, I interpreted this to suggest that we're near the end of the negotiations, and he's trying to push it across the line uh, with the, these additional um, strategies. All right, let's go with that theory for a second. Uh, and I hope you're right, by the way. Uh, you know, when, when he goes and doubles down on what he said yesterday, Ian, and says, uh, t- talking to the reporters, we're going to win this thing. We will win. We will win big. Yes. Uh, is that because he already knows that they've already made concessions to the, to the U.S. side? And not only that, he said in that tweet, I believe it was this morning or yesterday morning, he said, I've got some very good news to announce shortly for automobiles. Well, he is suggesting he's got some inside information, which, of course, he does. He's the president. He's privy to what's been, uh, the negotiations. And so... I think that, as I said, I, I think that they're closer to a deal than uh, than uh, we thought, and he is doing his his uh, his classical negotiating strategies that he mapped out in the in the deal in the book, The Art of the Deal, and and he's trying to, shall we say, motivate the Canadian negotiators and the American negotiators to um, maybe compromise a little bit more. Uh, to push it across the uh, finish line. I mean, it's very clear he's not going to cancel the deal uh, from all the signals coming out of Washington. And it's also very clear he really does need this deal to uh, n- to campaign in the Rust Belt states, Ohio, Michigan, and so forth, Pennsylvania. And, and uh, he needs it to uh, when he goes out this summer 
on the campaign hustings for the off-year election. And I say that because the House of Representatives is up for re-election, all 435. It's a toss-up right now whether the Republicans are going to win control, regain control, gain control, gain, and, and whether or the Democrats will uh, seize control. And why that's critical is if there is an impeachment vote, it must start in the House of Reps. If the, if the Republicans control the House of Reps, there will be no impeachment vote. If the Democrats gain control this November, then it's very likely there will be an impeachment vote, and he'll be spending the next two years fighting off impeachment. So it's, he needs that deal to go out and campaign in those critical states this summer and this fall, which is why I think he's pushing so hard in his, shall we say, unique way, for a compromise and a deal. And with that in mind, it's it's uh, no wonder then that he seems to be focusing on auto sector uh, parts of this deal, uh, because of those were the states that really, I, I guess, came through for him. When you're talking about Michigan and Ohio, yeah. and to a lesser extent, I guess, Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, where there's an awful lot of auto industry stuff, and, and obviously he's trying to resonate with that voter. Exactly. In fact, that's his base that put him in the White House, and there's a lot of auto jobs there. Um, that's the, uh, when we use the phrase Detroit, and we use the phrase frequently, it isn't literally only in Detroit. There are auto plants sprinkled all over uh, Ohio and Michigan, uh, not just in Detroit. And, and those people put, uh, there's, there's a widespread agreement that they were the people that put Donald Trump into the White House because he carried those three states, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, by 77,000 votes altogether in all three states. And that's what made him president. So he really does need a deal to go out and brag to the auto workers, I delivered the, the goods for you. Now vote, you know, support my candidates for the House of Representatives this fall. And so it really is critical. And he needs that deal. That's why he's not going to cancel it. But at the same time, he's trying to, he doesn't want it to drag on and on and on and on. So he's doing a little bit of a, uh, you know, threats and intimidation uh, to the Canadians and the Mexicans to, to get them to maybe uh, move a little bit more so they can have a deal. For a guy who's in a scenario like he is, and, and obviously he, obviously, I guess part of it's ego, but I mean, there's some political savvy going on here too. He needs something to brag about. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, it was going to be the summit with Kim Jong-un. We're not even sure if that's going to happen now. That's right. Because uh, it looks like uh, Kim has pulled the rug out from under him on that situation. So yes. he's now he's turning his attention back to NAFTA. I mean, it seemed to be on the back burner for a few weeks. Now it's yeah. like, okay, this is the one I, I have to have now. I, I agree completely. It looks like the, the Korean meeting is going to fall through uh, for various reasons, and it's not going to be the winner that he was hoping it, would go, it was going to be uh, when he did his campaigning. So he's back to the uh, to the uh, to NAFTA, and so he's got to have something to brag about uh, to as deliverables uh, to the voters. And so I think he's focusing all his efforts now and talking exclusively, really, on on NAFTA. And uh, that's what he thinks is going to just be in, get, get him enough seats in the House to ensure that the Republicans retain control of the House of Representatives. John Iverson in the National Post today writes that uh, what he has heard is that there may well be what he called a skinny NAFTA. In other words, uh, you're not yeah. going to get everything that was on the table, but we're going to give you some highlights of two or three things that are really, yeah. really important. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that idea? I think that's their fallback position, and I think that if they can't get through, uh, get, get in a, a comprehensive deal on everything, that they will have a, the fallback position is the skinny NAFTA, which will be primarily auto, and everything else will be status quo. And, and obviously that's what he can take to the bank in those states that he's, yeah. he's very much concerned about. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, maybe not so much the other stuff. I mean, I'm I'm sure that people like Verizon and others would love to see part of the, maybe telecommunications is this. I mean, we don't know until they actually come yeah, up with something exactly. at this stage. But if, I, if they can't get a full deal, a full comprehensive deal, then I think they will fall back. Their fallback position is not continue negotiating forever and ever, but to come up with a uh, a skinny NAFTA, which is primarily automobiles. So, okay, with that in mind, and let's talk about the other end of the political spectrum here. Uh, and that's Mexico. I mean, you know, there's still going to be, we assume, a North American free trade. I mean, there's been some talk now yeah. that they may hive this off and there'd be a U.S.-Mexico deal and a U.S.-Canada deal. It sounds like that's not really an option for them now. But no. there's, a, there's a Mexican election coming up very soon, Ian, and that could really mess everything up. Exactly. And if they don't, that's one more reason why I think they're going to, they're, the heat is on big time to come up with a comprehensive deal because they know that if it, it, the negotiations are pushed back after July 1, which is the date of the Mexican election, the, 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 leading, the person who's leading in the polls is a much more nationalist Mexican candidate. And he has said he's going to stand up with, to Trump a lot more aggressively than the current administration. So what that means is they won't be getting a deal anytime uh, soon at all if it's after July 1, because they'll be dealing with a new set of players from Mexico who will be much more aggressive and much more demanding. And so that's, as I said, that's another reason why they've got to come up with either a comprehensive deal or a skinny deal before July 1. So there's there's the deadline then. And I guess yes. I don't even know if the Mexican parliament's sitting now. Uh, as to whether or not they can actually get this thing and get it ratified. But it sort of sounds like that's what they're trying to get this thing done before that election actually takes place. Exactly, on the basis that the new, the incoming president will probably allow it to stand, meaning he won't. I mean, most presidents, incoming presidents of countries or prime ministers, generally don't abrogate major treaties uh, in, uh, negotiated by the preceding administration. Yes, Trump did it on TPP, some of your listeners may be thinking, but that was very unusual. Most uh, administrations accept, for example, when the Trudeau administration came in, they didn't repudiate CETA, the treaty agreement with Europe. They accepted it, and they said, okay, we'll do a little you know, fine-tuning at the margins. But generally, you accept the work of the preceding government, because it would cause chaos if you overturned everything that they did. Um, and, and so I think there's an assumption that they will, that the Mexicans would accept um, the treaty if it is completed and finalized before July 1, because then the new guy coming in can say, well, you know, it wasn't my treaty, it was the previous government, but we're just going to accept what they negotiated. But uh, it, just to your point, though, I mean, the support for TPP in the States was on life support anyway, wasn't it? That is correct. I mean, even very... Hillary Clinton, who was running for president, said, no, I, I don't like the deal either. I know that very... Obama had yeah. endorsed it, but it yeah. didn't get very far. And I, I, probably the Congress didn't really like the idea either. Exactly. It was very unpopular, in, certainly in the Rust Belt states and the manufacturing states, and uh, so it didn't have a lot of popularity. It was being attacked by both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats. So it was an orphan, really, uh, whereas NAFTA is not an orphan. There is strong support, notwithstanding the criticism of by Trump, there is strong support for NAFTA from the business class, business community, as well as many Republicans. People hear just Trump, and they don't realize there's many, many Republicans, including a lot of the governors, who are very strongly pro-NAFTA. So NAFTA is a very different situation from TPP. If this happens, and if, if they are able to cobble something together and present it, and, and as we've talked about, Trump is dying right now to have a press conference in the, in the Rose Garden and announce yes. something like this. And, yes. and, and so if that's, if that's the end goal here. Uh, does that put an end to this talk about tariffs, uh, both with either steel or with the auto industry? Because that's, that's the club the he keeps talking with. Uh, an agreement or print that they can announce that, that all that talk of tariffs will go away. 
absolutely. Because he's using those again, as I said, as, as, as really leverage to try to uh, bluff us, intimidate us, whatever the word is, uh, uh, bully us into uh, making some negotiations they're clearly demanding inside that room and so that they can uh, go forward. I think it's probably more dealing with uh, supply management and maybe telecom uh, than anything else. It's interesting, the tone, and, and that's always fascinating to watch what, how Trump articulates that. Uh, like I say, the rhetoric of the bombast is the same. The Canada is being difficult and we're spoiled. We've heard that song before. But then he, he, he followed it up by saying, we're going to get along with Mexico. We're going to get along with Canada. Absent the threat that, hey, I'm going to walk away from the table. He's not saying that now. He's going to say, we're still going to be friends, which, right. which may actually put some wind beneath the wings of this idea that you've got, Ian, is that maybe they're a lot closer than we think they are. Yes, I, I don't. I, I strongly believe he's not going to abrogate the deal. It's not in his best interest. It's not in the American interest. There's a lot of people in the states that do support NAFTA. So I, I think he's just he's doing his art of the deal stick shtick uh, to just try to get a better deal. That that's all he's doing. How does Canada sell this? I mean, obviously, if we're going to make some concessions. Uh, the job for the prime minister is going to be to go to the, well, let's assume the dairy industry and the telecom industry and say, yeah, I, I know you guys don't like this, but. It's, it's, uh, I think there's enough support now in Canada um, amongst all the different uh, amongst all the different uh, uh, parties, uh, with the exception of the NDP, uh, there's bipartisan support between the Liberals uh, and the Conservatives uh, for this, and the business class, and the Premier. So I, I don't think it's going to take a lot of selling. I, I think there's going to be uh, significant support for it, so it's, going to, uh, it's, it's not going to be a difficult sell on the Canadian side. It's interesting what you mentioned there, because I know obviously Stephen Harper's written an op-ed piece about this and basically told... Uh, the, the the Canadians that the, he didn't think Trudeau was doing a very good job on the negotiations. Andrew Scheer picked up that, but but former former leader uh, Rana Ambrose uh, has been very vocal about telling her own party, the Conservative Party, back off and let these guys work and get a deal done. Yes, 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 exactly. That's why I just I, I don't I, I think the problem, as I said over and over, I think it's in in the United States. It's not so much a, a Canadian problem. Yes, there's problems in Mexico, but the principal arguments have been against it have been inside the U.S. It's been principally inside the U.S. Well, we'll see how it goes over the next couple of weeks, and I, I hope you're right about this. And, and, and with yeah. that in mind, maybe we're going to get some good news about this in the next couple of days. Ian, thanks as always for the time. Okay, thanks very much. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, the concern, obviously, is from the local industries about the impact that that would have. And, and we already talked about the steel industry and, and the threat of tariffs, and we, we've talked with Tony Valeri from Arsenal Little to Fasco about that on a couple of different occasions, and they're, they're worried about it and concerned about it. Uh, but I'm not so sure it's, it's, it's a, a big threat anymore. And uh, what he talked about yesterday uh, was a 25% tariff, that being Trump, a 25% tariff uh, on auto industry and maybe even auto parts, which seems to run contrary to what we'd already heard about the auto sector parts of the negotiations, because there seemed to be some uh, some concurrence about, uh, well, maybe we need to broaden that and allow some of the uh, stuff that's being produced or at least refined up here in Canada uh, and put that under the umbrella of NAFTA. So it, it looks like there is some progress made here. So I, I guess Ian's point is that we have to look past the bombast here and uh, and hope for the best and that this is going to get done. But the point about the Mexican election is is key because, uh, like Ian mentioned to us, the guy who may be the new president of Mexico after that election uh, is not a Trump fan, and uh, he's uh, he's what they call a nationalist. In other words, he doesn't like this idea of international trade deals. Uh, so if he is successful, 
Uh, it could really throw a monkey wrench into the works here. So the uh, the pressure is on, I guess, all three countries to try to cut some sort of a deal over the next five or six weeks. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. In an op-ed piece, the president of the Ontario Medical Association says the province does not have enough doctors and that the healthcare system is not only inefficient, but downright inexplicable. Uh, the uh, statements, as uh, inflammatory as some people in, in politics may uh, feel that they are, I think are very necessary and, and should be part of the discussion and the debate that's going on since there is a provincial election. Joining us to talk about this is the president of the Ontario Medical Association, Dr. Nadia Alam, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I know I'm pulling you out of a meeting, but uh, this is an important subject, and I'm glad you could have, have some time to talk to us about this. Mr. Kelly, thank you so much for having me on the show. Please call Nadia. I will do that. Thanks, Nadia. Uh, let's let's get into this. And I guess the first thing I got to ask you: Are you surprised there hasn't been more of a discussion about health care? I mean, we're into the middle of a provincial election. We're talking about millions and billions of dollars. I know they talk about wait times uh, because that's a catchphrase they love to throw around at election times. But they're not talking about compliments and doctors and nursing and staffing, and that that that's troubling to me. I totally agree with you, Bill. I find it frustrating that they're doing what they usually do, what governments usually do, is focus on one little piece of the healthcare system and ignore all the rest. So what's happened over the last 15 years is Band-Aid solution after Band-Aid solution. Sure, they're focused on hallway medicine and wait times right now. They'll try and fix that, but what about the rest of it? What about family doctors? What about nurse practitioners? What about nurse-to-patient ratios? What about doing house calls? What about doing all the rest of it, home care even? Like, it's a, it's a massive issue. It's a huge puzzle. If you only look at one piece, you're not going to solve the puzzle. Well, let's talk about those things. And, and if they won't, we should. And because and, there's, a, there's a reality here that I think the politicians have to face. And your point's well taken, Nadia. I think many of the reasons they probably don't want to talk about it is because they don't want to make a commitment to do anything about it because it's going to cost money. Uh, and, and they don't seem to want to throw much money at this. And just about anybody who's uh, risen to power in the province over the last 20 or 25 years has actually focused on health care as one of the ways in which they want to cut spending. Yet what they do, then then they reverse it, of course, about a year before the election, so they can say, no, no, we're adding money. Uh, that's after they've taken an awful lot away. The whole system has taken a real hit in the last 15 or 20 years. You hit the nail on the head. You're totally right. Every time an election rolls around, we see all these promises, all this extra money that shows up, these millions and millions of dollars that they somehow pulled out of a hat. But they never look at the real problem. Our healthcare system was created in the 1960s, and since then, generally, it's been on autopilot. It hasn't been fine-tuned. It hasn't been updated. It hasn't been renovated to reflect the needs and suit the needs of healthcare in 2018. It's ignored the fact that we've got a population that's aging. We've got many more seniors now than we will um, back in the 1960s. And in fact, over the next 20 years, it's going to double the amount. And they need proper care. We're going to have patients with chronic diseases who are in the middle ages of their lives, the middle years of their lives. They need proper care. All of this is being ignored because it's election time. It's silly season at Queen's Park, so to speak. And that makes me really mad because healthcare is not a silly thing. You actually have to make decisions today. You have to make decisions this year so that you have that, because it takes years, it takes decades for those decisions to manifest in a proper healthcare system. And if we're not going to start now, when are we going to start? 
I have two friends that I talked to this week. It's it's interesting that your piece came out this week at Nadia, uh, both of whom have had to go to new doctors because the doctor they've been going to for the last number of years is retired. And and that's, that's their right. I mean, at some point you want to say, okay, I need to enjoy some time on my own, and, and we fully understand that. But the concern is, okay, who's taking up that, that, that slack at the other end? And I know that there are people that are going to medical school, and we can talk about those numbers in a second. But what I found troubling about the piece you wrote today, Nadia, is there are an awful lot of people graduating from medical school as doctors that can't get work. I, I don't understand yep. the disconnect there. Yep, and part of that has to do with the long training program that a doctor needs, even a family doctor needs to get the knowledge the necessary knowledge to take care of very complex patients or to be able to spot that rare illness that masquerades as a very common illness. Um, so first you have your four years of medical school and then you have residency for about two to ten years or even more sometimes. The people, the students graduating from medical school, in name they are called doctor. They've earned But if they can't get into a residency program, it's useless. It's a wasted degree. It's wasted time. It's wasted money because until they go through residency, they can't actually work in Ontario. That residency piece, that middle piece, is a key part of their learning. And it's very practical. It's very hands-on. It's almost like an apprenticeship. L last year, there were about 68 unmatched students, students who couldn't go on to become residents. This year, there are 222. And in fact, medical students are so afraid and upset about what's happening, they actually rallied on, at Queen's Park to try and solve this, try and get some sort of solution, try and get the government to start talking to them about this problem that's being created. Now, we saw this back in the Ray days when Bob Ray, then Premier, tried to cut medical school spots. And what happened? Predictably enough, 10 years later, there was a massive shortage. And they they did the same thing with, this time too. They did the same thing with nurses, did they not? Yes, yes. The nurses are facing the same sort of scenario where they're graduating and they're not able to find jobs. And what you're seeing on the wards are nurse-to-patient ratios that aren't safe anymore. The nurses I know, they're run off their feet. They work so damn hard. They're trying so hard to take care of their patients and trying to work with doctors at the same time. And yet... There's too many patients. There's too much need. One human can't do it all. And that's the scenario they're facing. That's why so many are burning out. I think burnout rates among nurses is 7 out of 10. Burnout rates among doctors are about 1 out of 2. These are both very alarming figures. Well, and let's talk about doctor shortages. And, and I know that that was a crisis situation uh, some years ago. It made headlines all over the place. We talked about it at yeah. great length here on this program and, and probably talk shows right across the province. Uh, when it was at its its worst scenario. But uh, I, I was looking at this incredulously and saying, there's no wonder there's a shortage, because back in the 1990s, uh, both the NDP and the, and the subsequent Conservative government reduced the number of people that could attend and actually graduate, both nurses and doctors. They reduced uh, the number of people that could actually graduate. Of course there was going to be a shortage. And then they had this shocked look on their faces, like, how did this happen? Well, they created it. Yep, yep. and it took 20 years to start fixing it. The last few years, so maybe not this year, but the last few years, we were actually seeing an improvement where 95% of Ontarians had a family doctor. But now that's beginning to slide. That number is beginning to dip. And that's because we're seeing new graduates who can't start family practices because the government's capped the number of team-based practices that are allowed. Um, 
And there are new graduates who are afraid of starting practices because the environment is so unstable right now. We don't have a contract. We're going into our fifth year without a contract. Nobody knows what their pay is going to be. So they don't know if they can afford to keep an office open. And I've had new graduates who've started practices and six months later who've shut them down because they just cannot afford to keep them open anymore. It's become it's a disaster in the making, like I wrote. That's an a worrying trend. Yeah, but there's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon. The, the, uh, uh, governments try to paint a portrait of, of what doctors are like. And, and maybe one of the worst examples of that was Finance Minister Bill Morneau last year with his, his uh, ill-fated well, tax reforms, which he basically targeted doctors and said, well, these are elites yeah. anyway. Uh, you know, what are they complaining yeah. about? But p- what people don't seem to understand is if somebody wants to hang their shingle out after they have graduated and, and they have been fortunate enough to get a residency program, everything that they have to pay for comes out of their pocket. Uh, whether it's yeah. it, whether they're renting an office or buying a building, all that equipment that they use, all the staff that they have, everything comes out of their pocket. You are, in fact, a small business, uh, and yeah, and absolutely. and you've got and on top of that, as you've already articulated, Nadia, most of the people, as a matter of fact, all of them graduate with enormous debt from medical school. So you're trying to pay that off, and at the same time, you're trying to start a business. You've got to use capital costs to get that going, and then payments on top of that. It's it's very burdensome. And, and the average individual, I guess, just doesn't really understand that. No, and it's tough to explain it because it is so complicated. And what I tell people who are worried, who ask me about my debt, I'll say, well, you know, I'm, nine, I'm into my ninth year of practice, of having a family practice, of working in the hospital as an anesthetist. I have not touched a cent. I have not been able to pay back a cent on my debt yet. And it's not like I live large. I don't go anywhere. I don't drive a fancy car. I still drive the same car I drove in residency. And I don't go on tons of vacations. I've gone on one in the last nine years. We don't buy expensive things. Both my husband and I grew up in very frugal households. So we live frugally. We live according to a budget. But even then, I haven't been able to pay down that debt. And part of it is because a lot of my money is going into my practice. Because I love my secretaries, right? My group practice has a couple of secretaries. They are fantastic people. I love them. I don't want to ever have to fire them or even consider the possibility of it because they have families of their own. They need the jobs as well. So instead, I make do with less so that we can keep going. And I keep hoping this ship's going to turn around. I'm going to try and stay optimistic. We started arbitration as of today. And my hope is that this ship is going to turn around. The situation's going to become more stable. I'll keep my practice going. More than that, the new graduates who are out there, they'll be able to start their practices, keep them going, and learn the joy of taking care of patients. It's funny, as the president of the OMA, I spend about three days working downtown doing stuff. Sometimes I'm flying around and touch a Thunder Bay or, or to Ottawa or whatever, but I keep Monday and Friday saved for my practices. So Fridays I do family medicine, Monday I still do anesthesia. Because at the end of the day, I love being a doctor. I love taking care of patients. There is something deeply rewarding about it. And I'm willing to go to the ends of the earth for my patients. Part of the problem here is, is a little bit of information, Nadia, can paint a very uh, uh, misrepresentative picture of what's going on. And you've seen this list, and you know whether it's the, the sunshine list that the government still puts out every now and then, uh, and yeah. they talk about doctors' salaries, and they say, well, you know, some of these people are making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, and and I'm 
probably some of them are. I get that. But what they don't talk about is what you've just uh, articulated, the debt that they have before they even open the door. Uh, their operating expenses, they have to pay salaries. You, you love your, your receptionist. Uh, some, of course, have nurse practitioners and others were involved in the, in the practice as well. The doctor has to pay that. They, they don't get paid by the government. By the, that's money that has to come out of that operation. So that that that, that gross $500,000 can get whittled down pretty quickly when you start looking at those other expenses. But they don't print that, do they? No, not at all. And, I mean, depending on the office, depending on the kind of medical equipment you use, a lot those expenses can be very, very expensive. An exam table alone, so a simple, plain old, bare-bones exam table that looks kind of like an IKEA table with a leather cushion on top starts at about $1,000. The bigger exam tables, the ones that have drawers, the ones that have foots for stirrups, the ones that go up and down so that seniors don't have to hike up onto a high exam table, you can actually lower it for them and lower it for kids, those cost about fifteen grand each. And if something breaks, it's an unexpected expense. So EMRs are a huge cost in a family doctor's office. So those computers, the digital records, the servers. Our server broke last year. That's about $15,000, $16,000 at the cheapest. Now, if you go to an ophthalmologist, they use even fancier equipment, and they pay all of that out of pocket. And some of those can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if they break, all of a sudden you've got this massive expense that you somehow have to pay for and if you don't have much coming in anymore it becomes really tricky and the banks don't necessarily want to take a chance on you and then you necessarily don't want to take a chance on on continuing something that you're not sure you can afford it's it's a lot more complicated than what the government paints and that's what frustrates me when are we going to get the message there are jurisdictions in the world that do it better than we do because they seem to understand and they take a different approach, basically. They say, what do we need to do here to make this a better system? Oh, that's how much it's going to cost? Okay, then that's how we have to spend. What what governments on this side of the ocean always tend to do, Nadia, is just simply say, here's the money that we've allocated for health care. You guys figure out what you're going to do with it. And it's never enough, obviously. But it, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a, an, an idiotic way of doing this because you're just simply throwing money at a system without actually assessing it. And, and as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, we are essentially working with the same system that was instituted in 1964. We've changed, society has changed, but the system hasn't changed a great deal. Yep, I totally agree. And in fact, this year I'm doing a master's in health policy, so I'm going to learn a lot about these other systems. And it's true. All around the world, the cost of health care is accelerating compared to how quickly GDP is rising. So the money being spent, being poured into health care is it's happening at a faster rate than the money coming in. And so all healthcare systems around the world are looking at how do we finance healthcare better? How do we um, deliver healthcare in a way that's more sustainable? Not just now, but in years to come, because we know that that senior population is coming. We know the demographics are changing. We know things are becoming more complex. And you're absolutely right, Bill. Every other country has evolved their systems. Ontario's healthcare system is crude compared to what other countries are doing. There is so much more we could be doing in so many different ways. And I don't get why there is no political will in Ontario to try and learn from the lessons learned from other countries and try and apply what could work in Ontario. We certainly spend a lot of time learning about it. There are lots of health policy people at Ministry of Health but I don't see any sensible policies coming out. It's all Band-Aid solutions. 
Yeah, here I was talking about offshore. I mean, there there are actually examples uh, in, in Canada where where it's done better than it here in Ontario. So I mean, you don't have to look too far to try to to find some innovative things that they could do here. But first and foremost, uh, it's it's staffing the, the the programs and and doing that sort of thing. And and it's 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 disgusting that there are two hundred and twenty two graduates that can't seem to get jobs because there aren't any internships for them. Uh, or residencies for them in situations, uh, and and it just it just seems as if we've got a convoluted way of looking at this system. And I can understand your frustration, but I, every time I talk to you, you're optimistic, though. You you're a glasses half full person, Nadia. I, I give you credit for that. Thank you, Bill. It's because I, I'm determined that this is going to change. I am so determined that this is going to change, and the Ontario Medical Association is right there too. Where we spent the last year doing a lot of internal shuffling and an internal cleanup. We settled down our house, put our house in order, and now it's time to look outwards and say, okay, enough fooling around. We have to get serious about healthcare. Well, uh, there's one more leaders debate, and it's going to be this Sunday evening, and uh, some uh, good friends of mine, Nadia, uh, th- that are going to be moderating that thing, Farah Nasser from Global News and Steve Paikin, of course, from TVO, uh, both very knowledgeable about many of these issues, and, and I'm hoping that yeah. they can hold their feet to the fire on that and maybe get the discussion going. Uh, I, as I mentioned at the top, I know I pulled you out of a meeting to do this, and I really do appreciate that. Uh, I'll let you get back to work, and uh, hopefully we've started a conversation on this too. Thank you so much, Nadia. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill, for an amazing conversation. Take care now. Nadia Alam, of course, president of the Ontario Medical Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.